The subject tonight is undaunted courage or not fearing freedom. And I want to frame what I'm talking about, the talk, and also framing your experiences, each of yours, ours experience, using the framework of the Four Noble Truths. This isn't exactly a Four Noble Truths talk, but just a hold in the framework of of what I'm talking about, that that's a conceptual way of understanding our experience. I'm assuming you're familiar with the Four Noble Truths. And I know Joseph at least spoke about the first one last night, that uh, painful, difficult stuff happens, old age, sickness, disease, death, loss, all of that, impermanence, the unsatisfactory nature of experience, if we try to hold on to anything to make us happy, the no-self of it all. But basically, just getting it, that that is part of the human condition. It's not a mistake and not something that's specifically only happening to you because you messed up. But that the first noble truth is the framework to hold what's happening. The second truth, of course, being the cause of suffering, not the cause of pain, but the cause of our suffering, our confusion, that we relate to experience with clinging and aversion out of our not understanding experience accurately. In other words, if we really understood the first noble truth, we would stop clinging, because it just doesn't make sense. So the second noble truth, that the cause of, of our our suffering, our anguish, is our clinging, is our confused response or reaction to situations. It's really ignorance. The third truth being that there is an ending of clinging, an ending of suffering. And this is uh, where I want to start broadening out a little bit tonight, because this is where it gets interesting, right? I mean, if there were no third truth... The first two would be a little dismal. So the third truth, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for you experientially, not just conceptually? Do you even go there in your mind? I mean, other than, oh, no, that's impossible for me. Other than that, or I've got to get enlightened or I'm going to die. Other than those two extremes... How do you hold or even think about or relate to this third truth? I want to read you a few descriptions various, from the Buddha, various places, his definitions of nibbana. That which is the exhaustion of greed, of hate, and of delusion is called nibbana. The exhaustion of greed, of hate, of delusion. It's hard to see this truth, namely, the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. And then one other, again, different way he defines it. There is an ultimate reality, unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, and unformed. If there were not, there would be no escape possible here for one who is born, created, conditioned, and formed. But since there is this ultimate reality, unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, and unformed, Escape is possible for one who is born, created, conditioned, and formed. Different ways 
that the Buddha described this nibbana. And there's two, you could say, other ways we could think about it, describe it, or experience nibbana. One is the idea of a moment of freedom or momentary freedom. Asayada Upandita often describes it. A moment of pure mindfulness, a moment of sati, is a moment of freedom. Because in that moment of pure attention, there is no kalesa present. There is no greed, hatred, or delusion arising or being held to in a moment of mindfulness. So different ways of describing like you could call temporary nibbana. And then the arhat model, the, which is that when the roots of greed, hatred, and delusion are completely abandoned, cut off at the root like a dead stump, you know. I'm not trying to feed your conceptual mind here. I'm just want to, in framing what we're talking about in terms of the Four Noble Truths, not wanting to stop at the first two, but to also, in a way, I'm not trying to um, get your greed going or stimulate thinking, but more to challenge you to be conscious of what ideas or attitudes you may or may not be holding to, what expectations or descriptions you may consciously or unconsciously be trying to get to, you know, about your ideas of what freedom is. And sometimes that can get in the way. This idea of momentary and more permanent freedom, this, this very famous quotation from the Buddha speaks to both, I think. That one, you've probably heard it already ten times, just this retreat. <laughs> Everyone always reads it. It's the favorite one. The mind is naturally radiant and pure, but it is colored or obscured by the calaces that visit it. The mind is radiant and free of the calaces that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands. And so, for the noble follower, there is cultivation of the mind. Understanding that the mind is naturally radiant and pure and that it is obscured, this radiance, this purity. It's obscured, it's colored by the calaces that visit. And when we understand that, that's why we then cultivate development of the mind. That's the fourth noble truth, right? The Eightfold Noble Path. And so, in a way, it's saying because of the natural radiance, and the this is my interpretation now, and our ability to touch that, to recognize if just for a moment, that is what allows us to set out on the path and to continue to cultivate awareness. So, however you're holding freedom for yourself, whether that's a deep motivation for you, whether that's your inspiration, if that's what keeps you going, it really does require of us total commitment to this path. It's not a half-hearted thing. And at the same time, as it's not half-hearted, I'm going to be going back and forth with two sides the whole night probably. As Ajahn Buddha Dasa, there's a great article, a talk of Ajahn Buddha Dasa's called Nibbana for Everyone. At the same time, that the cultivation of our heart and mind to really recognize and trust that recognition of the innate purity of heart and mind, the same time that that requires total commitment, it is the natural possibility for everyone, nibbana for everyone. So it's a long talk. I won't, I'll just say a little bit of what he's talking about. He was very... Ajahn Buddha Dasa, he was very, very famous in Thailand. He died not quite 10 years ago. Um, Very well-respected Theravada forest monk. But at the same time, he was, uh, for Theravada in Thailand, quite radical. 
Now, that's not radical by our standards, maybe, but for Theravada in Thailand, he was quite radical. And so he, in this talk, Nibbana for Everyone, he starts out by talking about how basically in Thailand in these days, uh, Nibbana is something, the idea of it, something that's sort of been shoved aside. And he gives a bunch of examples um, that say, you know, laymen, lay people in general have been informed that Nibbana is some special place without suffering, but you can just be happy and have everything you want, and you usually get there after death. So the developers of the generation view Nibbana as a hindrance to economic and social development, something that should not be studied or even mentioned. Students generally put Nibbana in a category for old, devout Buddhists, so they don't need to pay attention to it themselves. Young people see Nibbana as something bland, with no taste, something truly awful and undesirable. (laughs) And he just keeps going, you know, with different examples of it. But then he goes on to say, Nibbana is a natural condition. And he, he's very straightforward and simple sometimes in the way he would describe things. He says, Nibbana is the cool state of mind without any kalesa, the cool state of mind without defilements present in that moment. And he goes on to also differentiate between the sense of momentary or temporary coolness which we all experience a great deal of the time, and then what he calls a more permanent nibbana, again, when, it's, when the defilements are really uprooted, the underlying tendencies for them to arise aren't there, right? the permanent coolness. But he, he goes on to talk a lot about really recognizing that there are many moments of this natural state of coolness when defilements are not occurring. And coolness is almost a literal translation of the word nibbana. You know, that's what it means, cool. They use the word in Thai to say when rice, for example, has cooled. You know, the rice has nibbana so to speak. It's just, the fire's going out. So it doesn't have to be something so incredibly esoteric that you can reach after 10,000 eons and not before. So I like this. He's saying, anyone can see that if defilements are with us all day and night, every second without ceasing, who could stand them? I know some of you are thinking that's how it is, every second without ceasing. (laughs) He's saying, but really look, under such conditions, living things would either die or become insane, and then die anyway. So let us consider well the fact that we survive because there are periods when the fires of defilement are not burning. Why can't we notice and appreciate these times that we're all surviving because of the nourishment from this type of nibbana? I just like that. He's so, you know, kind of down-to-earth and straightforward. But if you think of it another way, the fact of the essential Radiance and purity of mind, heart is a fact, and that is true. Not 10,000 eons from now, when we wake up, but it's true now. That's what nourishes us. That's what can keep us practicing. That's what allows for escape from the born and the conditioned and suffering, as the Buddha said. You know, If there were no unborn, escape would not be possible. Now, unborn is true now, not in some other reality in some other lifetime. So, Nibbana for everyone, including you, including me. So that's the preamble. And what I want to talk about was a a point at times of fascination for me in my own practice and in talking with people, with some of you, and with people also in other retreats, is how we can reach, at times, points in our practice, and we may reach them again and again, different points, on our individual journey where maybe we've come up against, it may be a point of difficulty, but it's not necessarily We've come up against possibly some idea we didn't even know we had, maybe, 
of what freedom or liberation is or should be, or we run into some idea of what it might entail, or we run into something that we hadn't really thought about, that it does seem to entail. And people will come in and say, with a sort of a maybe surprised or a little rueful or self-judging or whatever, on some level they say, oh, I'm thinking maybe I don't really want liberation. You know, maybe I'm not really quite practicing for that uncompromising, radical freedom from clinging, you know? Like so far, and maybe that's far enough for now, you know? Have you ever noticed feeling like that? And that, I think, is a really fascinating and juicy and important point when we reach it in practice. There can be various reasons, and I want to talk about some, and ways of reconnecting with, really, our inspiration. Where can we find that undaunted courage that keeps us going when we've hit a place where, for any of various reasons, we're saying, okay, good enough. (laughs) I'm out of here now. (laughs) Or more than enough, you know, or... I know this isn't freedom, but if freedom means X, Y, Z, I don't want it, you know? So really looking and seeing what that's about. I think it's a rare person who doesn't come up against it, you know, because being the analyzing, thinking, conceptual beings that we are, You'd be pretty rare if you didn't have some conceptualization, right, of what freedom is or what our path is or what it's going to feel like or whatever. And when we suddenly run into the the sense, the experience, oh, freedom from clinging also means that. And I'll go give some examples of what I mean by that, you know. I didn't, that didn't fit into my ideas, of what freedom is, you know. Or freedom from suffering means opening to some of the things Joseph talked about last night. It means really facing this stuff, not avoiding it permanently. That's what I thought freedom was. This stuff didn't come up anymore. Not that I have to open to it and feel it more than before I came here, you know. So I think it's normal that it comes up. With the best intentions... And with all that we read and all that we study and all that we've practiced, whatever we think freedom's going to be, it can't be what we think. We can only think what we know. You know, Krishnamurti's famous saying, freedom from the known, that's a really profound saying in my humble opinion. And whatever we think, actually there's a saying from the Buddha, in whatever way people conceive the fact is ever other than that. You get that? That's one of these radical statements. Give it up. Whatever you're thinking, the fact is other than that. It just cuts through, you know. And now I'm going to blab all night about, but... So partly we run up against this wall of, no, either it's not what I want, or I can't do it, or which is really a common wall for, for us here. It's, it's too big of a task. Me, with my particular impurities and defilements, whatever they are, I can't liberate myself. Even if there's another 10,000 incalculables and eons, I could never do it. You know, Maybe these other guys, everyone else here, but not me. Enlightenment's not for me. How do we find the total commitment to keep practicing and not have our motivation completely deflated and ebb away in the face of this? And by the way, this thing about I couldn't do it with my defilements, you know, as if it's me that's getting enlightened, you know, as if enlightenment is some kind of self-improvement project that makes me better, And if I had a better sense of me, that could get enlightened. When it's the whole standpoint of me that we see through in the first place. So your crummy, you know, 
caught up, calaisa-ridden me is as good a one to see through as a purer one, you know? So that excuse doesn't wash. <laughs> you have to keep practicing. So Joseph talked a, a lot last night about running up into the place of fear when we're coming into the uncomfortable, when we're coming into the difficult, the painful. And I'll, again, talk a, about the difficult and how that can make us think, I can't do this, you know, enlightenment's not for me. But I first want to talk about how sometimes it's not, it's not confronting, it's not always confronting the difficult or the painful that can bring us to one of these kind of crises of motivation, one of these places where our willingness just ebbs away. Fear of freedom, sometimes it's seeing really how subtly we delight in the pleasant, how subtly we really like craving, we really like pleasure. And I mean, people talk about this often, and there's kind of a fear. This is what Buddha Dasa was talking about, the young people say. It's just this drab, gray, really boring thing. I can't tell you how many times people have said, who wants to give up, you know, wanting and fear? Someone said to me once, what am I going to do, just sit in my room all day? (laughs) As if these are the only options open to us, wanting, fear, or sitting in our room doing nothing, you know? But the mind can can really kind of get caught on that, you know? One person, I hope you don't mind my using this example, it's a perfect, very small example, but you can really see how, if we're not paying attention, we can just hit that wall and not look more carefully. Uh, Talking about a bagel day, which I I understand again today was a bagel day. (laughs) It's a big day in the yogi world, I understand that. But anyway... She was talking about seeing just how much she was loving, you know, the bagels and the taste of bagels, and then started noting pleasant, pleasant, and it was as if the whole taste of the bagel just turned to sawdust. (laughs) Isn't that the fear? It says, oh, I remember one time I was deep in a retreat sometimes, something was going on very pleasant in the walking, and Sharon said, well, you know, you've got to note pleasant. And I went back and, you know, the mind had a little temper tantrum because I knew very well, no, not that it would turn to sawdust, but what goes away when we're noting, just noting pleasant, pleasant, is that subtle identification with the gratification of the pleasure. Gratification meaning I'm really liking this bagel. I'm, and I'm even exaggerating. There's not even maybe the word I, but the... the, uh, Awareness or the energy is kind of coming back to me. Nice taste, mmm. Swallowing, mmm. Do you know what I mean? The Buddha even said that unwise attention to the gratification of the pleasant is what leads to the hindrance of sense desire. So noticing pleasant, fine. What goes away is that extra, mmm, I'm liking this taste. Now, it doesn't necessarily follow that if we notice pleasant, the actual experience of pleasant goes away. That's not necessarily true. Maybe that taste of bagel turned to sawdust, but it doesn't mean everything's just bland gray. But seeing how subtly attached we can be to that gratification of pleasure and thinking, no, I, I, I didn't sign up for this. You know, I want to fill in the blanks, right? And it goes from something as simple as enjoying the taste of a bagel to my relationship. I have to give up my family. I have to give up, you know, my home. I have to give up everyone I've ever loved. I have to give up, you know, whatever. And then the mind really can go into an aversion, a fear, or pulling back. No, if it means this. I don't want freedom. You know, and again, it's as if in that way the mind is again projecting what it can't know. It's giving up the attachment 
it doesn't mean we have to go out and throw away everything. You know, I, I remember for years I would, when I'd be on long retreats, some long time ago, like 20, I don't like to say how long ago, <laughs> longer ago than I wish. <laughs> I, but at one period when I was in relationship for a few years with someone, we were doing a lot of sitting together, and I could see the place where my mind would, just in the stillness, very quiet, there'd just be a little movement of attachment, you know, towards the image or thought of that person. I mean, I wasn't talking to the person. Just this little movement of attachment. And as if, but that's not so big. It's not really disturbing my samadhi. I don't need to really look at it. It doesn't count, you know? It counts. And I could see the fear was if I were to look at the attachment, that means the whole relationship has to end. You see what I mean? If I see the attachment, and often people will talk about this, you know, I'm so attached to my, my children, how can I not? As if by even looking at the suffering of attachment, we're somehow um, disowning our children or our partner or our family, you know, or we're somehow throwing these things out. And we don't even then get close to simply look at that moment of attachment to pleasure, to wanting in the mind. That's where Menindra's famous line of a thought of your mother is not your mother is so important. You're sitting here feeling attached to your partner or your children, and for most of you, they're not here. It's a thought arising in the mind, and we can be afraid to even feel and look at the attachment to a thought, which is what? Nothing. Nothing. The thought is gone. So just... Finding that, that willingness to look without buying into our idea of it means everything goes. But also the willingness to look without trying to hold on, "Uh uh-oh, but Carol said I can look and still have it all too. Just really look, not think this doesn't count. Another aspect that often can bring us to that place of not this too, because I've seen it in myself a lot, is an, uh, feeling a sense of familiarity with our habits, our habits of personality, our habits of relating to life, our comfortable ways of, or uncomfortable, they're not even always comfortable, but our familiar ways of inhabiting a sense of who I am. You know, it's like, I like life this way, you know? I don't want to change it. Really, what I'm talking about here is personality belief, sakaya ditti. Even our suffering, uncomfortable personality beliefs, sometimes we can just run up against a point, well, who would I be if I didn't think of myself as low energy? I'm a person, I'm picking really simple examples, I'm a person who has to go to bed at 10 and get up at 5, otherwise I wouldn't be able to practice. It's always been that way, that's just who I am. You know, that's just acceptance. I'm just accepting myself, you know? <laughs> Who would I be without impatience? Who would I be if I didn't have a snippy, aversive mind? Compassion, that moment of compassion, well, that wasn't me. That was just a momentary fluke coming through, you know? The idea of what's possible for us, our creativity, our personal memories, our whole felt sense of familiar, physical, energetic, psychological presence. Just that noticing that sometimes a moment of experience can directly challenge that. And even the suffering ones that we tend to just, no, it's more comfortable, it's more easy, and there's a kind of a fear of freedom from that. Even though intellectually, We all know putting that stuff down is nothing but a relief. But that's just thinking about the thought of putting it down, the thought of even looking. Who would I be without these precious memories of whatever happened, without knowing my energy system? I know what I'm capable of. And that's the end of it. 
entering into moment after moment after moment the sense of real unknowing instead of coagulating a sense of mental, physical, psychic identity, a real unknowing. Okay, yesterday I fell asleep at 9 o'clock p.m., just as I have every night I've ever been on retreat in 20 years. But tonight, maybe it's different. I don't know. Can I meet it fresh without holding on to the ideas of the past? This is from Tame Children. To be fully alive, fully human, and completely awake is to be continually thrown out of the nest. To live fully is to be always in no man's land. To experience each moment as completely new and fresh. To live is to be willing to die over and over again. From the awakened point of view, that's life. Death is wanting to hold on to what you have and to have every experience confirm you and congratulate you and make you feel completely together. Sound familiar? So even though we say the Yama Mara is fear of death, It's actually fear of life. That's just so familiar to me, that sense of wanting every experience to confirm, congratulate, and make you feel completely together. And somehow, at times, it's quite easy to have translated our sense of practicing for freedom into we're practicing to get to that point where we feel totally and finally completely together, right? Instead, it's just the reverse. There's no us here to feel completely anything. Always new, radical non-clinging. The actual dissolving of this holding to experience to confirm us, it's freedom. It's a huge relief. But the process that we can go through, that we do go through, of coming up to these moments over and over again in myself, it's, it's really felt over the years that practice is a series of small deaths, psychological deaths, emotional deaths, just kind of dying. And with all the sense of loss, and grief, and sadness, and clinging that goes along with a sense of death. I don't mean, oh yes, death of that. (laughs) Isn't that freeing? Isn't that, you know? I mean, really the sense of grieving that goes along with that. Even if I had to put it in words, it would sound really stupid, you know, because I'm grieving some really unhelpful, limiting idea I've had about who Carol is anyway, what's to grieve, but it doesn't make sense on that level. But it's really a sense of a grieving, some sense of who I am. And it just keeps on going like that. But it's always moving through to a broader, more alive, more connected and vibrant place of being. But along with it also goes, I feel like I'm losing more and more the sense of what actually freedom could actually mean, which I think seems to be a good thing. Because as soon as I have some idea of freedom, it's a box. It's a limitation. One starts trying for that. Already, everything freezes. So that's on the side of where we run up against this, you know, I really don't want to be liberated from our attachments to pleasure, to our ideas of happiness, our sense of ourselves. And I want to talk a little more also on the side of the more difficult. Well, there's a few different ways that I've noticed, and I'm sure you'll notice your own ways, particular 
experience that we come to that place of the motivation just drops through the floor. And I don't mean just for a moment. We all have these moments of, I'm out of here. You know, this isn't for me. I can't do this. I don't mean the passing thought. Or it passes, but not so quickly, but it passes. But I mean a much more pervasive sense that I've really hit the place where I don't know any more reason to keep on doing this. Sometimes it's a little humbling when we see, we get to where we see what's been our driving motivation and we see how limited or self-serving it was. But I think for most of us, we're going to start with some kind of limited motivation. You know, we want to suffer less. Nothing wrong with that. And often what can happen is there's a particular suffering, maybe a personality pattern or a knot of physical pain or a kind of critical mind or so much anger that you really are practicing to alleviate, to see through. And I have friends, I know plenty of people who, after very sincere practice over years, get to a place of more equanimity or that particular pattern is much less troublesome. And actually their motivation to practice kind of disintegrates. Thinking of one very good friend at the moment, and he spent, it was really a revelation to him, it was in the middle of a three-month course, and suddenly the reason he'd been practicing this particular suffering just went away. He's going, well, now what do I do? You know, <laughs> here I am on this three-month course, you know, now what do I do? And he kept on practicing. Of course, you find, you, if, if you can keep on practicing in these times, of course, our understanding opens and broadens and we find other motivations, so our motivation keeps changing. But this can be a very um, confusing and trying phase of practice when our limited aspiration is fulfilled. And we go, oh, you know. And I think that's uh, one of the reasons that there's a lot of people who begin practice, in this form of practice or any, there's much, much fewer who show up at a retreat like this for three months, you know? And then it's already a very, very deep commitment, rare in this world, partly because of the limited aspiration. Okay, I'm feeling better, that's good enough. Or, and this is what Joseph was more talking about last night, the times when... (laughs) It's just too much pain, physical or mental. You all know that. Just a grind. It's just too much. Just think, I can't face this anymore. Or it hasn't even come up yet, but there's the intimation. You have this sense, that lurking sense of something really big and unbearable that's going to come. You can just feel it's going to come and suddenly it's enough, I'm out of here, you know. And I don't mean the moment, just that I just cannot bear it anymore. Freedom from suffering is opening to this? I don't think so. These are profound moments. I mean, we're laughing a little. It's nothing to judge oneself about or get critical about or think there's something wrong with us, but it is important to treat these moments as very important times in practice. Because, as as Joseph was talking with fear, but these places of motivation dropping out are bringing us up right to the edge of our understanding of what's possible, of freedom. And that's our limitation, our understanding of what's possible. You know, that's what we don't know more than. And that's where we have to find the place of trust and faith that simply keeps us looking. I don't mean striving or pushing. I don't even mean that we're staying steady in any particular form. I'm not talking about technique or skillful means here. Just that willingness to keep showing up. Whether the showing up means a skillful backing off, that's still showing up. It's finding what helps us be present. But I think because this is the first noble truth, opening to how things are and discovering that heart and mind, that radiant peace that is possible for us no matter what's happening, necessitates our being willing and able to be there no matter what's happening. 
And it seems like on this planet there's relatively few people who, who somehow have that faith or the courage and the time and the conditions to do what you're all doing, which means to keep showing up and not when it's a really nice day, think, well, okay, but today's nice. It would be better, you know, if I went off on a picnic. I remember Myoshin telling me once a few years ago she was invited to teach a day long, I think it was, somewhere in Connecticut. Kind of thing where they beg you to come, they set it up long ahead, oh, you know, we really want you to come. And then she went and it was this beautiful day, you know, and hardly anyone shows up. They really want you to come, but it should rain, otherwise we'd miss something. And so where's the real commitment? Ultimately, awakening, freedom, and the compassion that comes with it becomes more important to us than any particular aspect of our experience. More important than any aspect of our experience, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, terrifying, ecstatic, or boring. Simply the love of awakening, of freedom itself, becomes the compelling force. And we stop being so drawn and fascinated by experience itself. So what can help us when we hit these moments of non-negotiable experience? Non-negotiable, this attachment is not negotiated, I don't give it up, you know? Or this particular pain, this particular fear, this particular thing, it's not negotiable, I'm not going there, you know? How can we keep going? And the suggestions I want to offer, and there's many, this is what I want to offer tonight, is when we are really, and again, I'm not talking about just moments when it's a little hard. I'm talking about when we've really hit that wall and we think, I just can't muster it up again. You know, I can't, I don't want to, and I won't. But just whatever is, and this, as we know, it, it can last longer than a whole retreat, right? It can last years. But the staying with it, it changes, as does everything. So just what I, I want to offer, if it helps you on this retreat, use it. If not, let it go. Generally, when we're hitting these places, as with everything, when we're really suffering, we tend to be drawn into our particulars, our particular story, our particular suffering, the particular attachment we don't want to let go, our particular um, feebleness and inability to ever be awakened, whatever, but it's our story, usually. So a couple of ways of expanding the frame, and this is where thinking of you, your experience, as part of the Dhamma, part of the Four Noble Truths, can really help. A couple of ways. First, when you realize it's hard, I mean really hard, not just little hard, really hard, the hard of, I can never do this and you really believe that, expand the picture beyond yourself and realize it's hard for everyone. It's not just you it's hard for. Yeah, it is hard. That's part of it because of attachments. Even though Ajahn Buddha Dasa says Nibbana for everyone, he didn't say it's easy for everyone. It's still hard. And uh, even teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh, who is often giving a message of, you know, peace is every step, just open to peace, notice peace even in suffering. But he's not like a mushy softy. You know, he said at one point, we're not determined enough to liberate ourselves from our deepest suffering. It takes huge determination. Or, I've been waiting ages to use this one, from Suzuki Roshi. Um, and you know, this is, this is like a typical, just to give you a, a sense of how you often read Suzuki Roshi, where he's talking about, you know, Zazen, leave your front door and your back door open. Let thoughts come and go, just don't serve them tea. That's great, huh? That's nice. And you feel, yeah, it's easy. It's heartwarming. And plus, I like the reference to tea. And it's very gemutlich. It's very, you know, home. This is also Suzuki Roshi. This is from the biography, Crooked Cucumber. Just like he just suddenly seems like he just lost it in this quotation. He starts saying to all his, his long-term followers he's talking to, spineless, 
You only want a sweet pill. You never want the bitter pill. Spineless. You say you want the truth. None of you want the truth. If I told you the truth, I'd be left sitting here alone, listening to the sounds of your cars driving up the road. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) You just get a sense, huh? There's just moments that that's so true. For me, I see it. I sort of want the truth to some extent. I like the tea and the open door, you know. But that's not always how it is. So it's hard for everyone. Don't take it so personally when it's hard for you. Don't get so wrapped up in the story and don't take it as the finality of things. It is, of course, another mental state. Maybe it seems to last for two years, but it's still a mental state. And again, whether it's the suffering aspect that's putting us off where we're just feeling lost in too much suffering, or we've hit that really comfortable plateau where, well, this is good enough. This must be equanimity. Great. I'm going to live the rest of my life like this. But either way, this wretched lifting, moving, placing, you know, dragging through the day, reaching, intention to turn, you know, touching, is like, okay, I don't, enough of that feel like we just want to go back to the pleasure garden, you know? Like in the story of the Buddha before he left home as the bodhisattva, where the, his father kept everything so perfect so he shouldn't ever see even a dead flower. You know, every night he'd have servants go out and cut all the wilted flowers so, so the Buddha-to-be should never even see wilting, never mind old age, disease, and death. And some part of us hits a place, either from too much pain or, okay, no pain, good enough, where we think we can go back to the pleasure garden and just hang out there. But there never was a pleasure garden. Even that story, was it Joseph or Myoshin told about Deepama saying, as beautiful as the fall colors are on the lake, it's nothing compared to the Deva Chen, the Deva realms. But even there, they don't get to hang out there forever. You know, they die out of there too. There is no permanent pleasure garden. And one of my first, really first teachers used to say, (laughs) he was a little rough, he'd say, uh, once you've really started, we're really seeing, we can't just like shut down and go back to ignorance. Even if you wanted to, we have moments, but we don't really. The teacher would say, it's the the, um, velvet-gloved iron fist of the Dhamma has got you, you know. (laughs) And you can't really just shut down and go back to the pleasure garden. But what can help when you're really feeling like this pain of mine, emotional, psychic, memories, physical, or just the angst of moment after moment of samsara, it's just unbearable. What I find really helpful is, again, to move from the particular to the general to see that this isn't just my pain. This is the condition of the world, the Four Noble Truths. Widen the scope. Widen the lens. You might be saying, you mean I can't bear my own pain and I should widen the lens to see that this is part of all the suffering you know, in the world? But actually... That makes a huge difference because it's the minus of my pain that actually makes it more unbearable. And when we see that our particular suffering, whether it's, you know, a sore toe or hunger or grief or illness or fear or trauma, whatever our suffering is, it's, it's a representative of the suffering of the world. We are the Dhamma. You know, we're part of it. It's not that somehow we have to try and connect ourselves. This is an example of the Four Noble Truths. This is the condition of beings in this realm, on this world. So not only is it something that we can't bypass, but also by widening the scope, what happens for me at times is it 
it kind of busts me out of my, oh, poor Carol, or whatever the particular way you say it to yourself is. And it's uh, quite natural, not even looking for it. But what naturally happens is it becomes this expansive link of compassion to the state of beings. I remember one time, I think I've told this before, I was in a hospital. You, you can get definitely into that, oh, poor me. But I looked, I was in a room with three other women. Somehow I was in the elderly women orthopedic floor. And that was the only place they had a bed. So it was really elderly women with like, you know, two broken legs and arms up. And, really, and I just looked around and I thought, oh, that's really suffering. And just expanded it out. You know, I wasn't trying to do a thing. This just happened. Wow, everybody, this hospital has like five, six floors. There's people in all these rooms. There's so much here. And all the hospitals just in this area. And, all, you, know, and you just keep going. And it's unthinkable. But it's also completely connecting, unseparated. I am the Dhamma. All of these people, all of these women are the Dhamma. And as much as it's poignant and painful and at times unbearable, there's also, right with it, the immense beauty of, of compassion. The compassion that's not only just for ourselves, but that turns into the really ennobling state of heart-mind of bodhicitta, the, the motivation of awakening, not just for myself, but for all beings. And I find that whenever I can expand the lens, widen the focus take the highlighting off of my own suffering, not denying or belittling one's suffering at all. It's not a matter of, oh, there's so much suffering, so I have no right to complain. That's also a denial. It's like, oh, yeah, this illness is a representative of all the illness in the world. We're all in this together. This is the first noble truth. And the suffering of it is about the relationship to it. It's not about that I can somehow go back to the pleasure garden and not experience this anymore. This particular one I might get rid of, but something else is going to come. I remember once I was um, invited to talk with some women in a, in a prison, in a minimum security prison, and we were, it was just an informal talk in a room, and one of the women said something that's really stuck with me, she was talking about how really in this prison it was fairly comfortable and they had a fair amount of freedom, you know, they could do things and had activities. And she said, you know, it was easy to forget sometimes that she was in prison. And she would get so comfortable that she would forget. But then always she'd bump up against some regulation or some restriction or some painful thing and that would remind her, oh yeah, I'm in prison, you know. And that, that getting so comfortable we forget, she was saying that's not something she ever really wanted to do. And I think it's the same for us, you know, that that prison door is really always open, that seeing the freedom from bondage is always accessible, but we have to be willing to recognize the bondage. And the bondage isn't the fact that we're experiencing the first noble truth, that's part of our common humanity. Our bondage is thinking we can jump out of it and get back to the pleasure garden and stay there. And so I actually find, you know, this is a real Vipassana thing. <laughs> it would sound totally weird in the world. But I actually find it really deepens and inspires my motivation. It strengthens my motivation. When I'm face-to-face with suffering, I feel like I can't bear to widen the scope widen the lens, and really see, really hear, open one's heart. The first noble truth and the second are all around us, all the time. Life is always showing us difficulty, pain, loss. It's always showing us beauty, love, and happiness. Every day, every minute, just sitting here in this room, you know, even without talking to each other, I know from things people have said, you can sense, you know, the suffering of someone else or the peace and the happiness of someone else. Just walk outside and look at the fall, 
which to me is such a poignant time because there's this incredible beauty and crispness and freshness and vitality while meanwhile everything's dying. And the chipmunks are going wild this year. There's a lot of chipmunks. I was walking down the road and I could just see them running all both sides and they're so full of life. And you know, how many will make it through the winter? How many will even make it across the road? That's another question. Um, I make it a... Part of my practice, my daily practice, is a few times a week to be sure I listen to the BBC News because it really tunes me in, not just to the, the big news that we all hear everywhere, but all kinds of little pieces of news, and usually news is suffering, but not always, in all different parts of the world. Places I just hadn't even thought about. Or just in the last two days, a man was here yesterday from Africa and describing the starvation that's happening right now in Zimbabwe. Um, Just a couple of hours ago, talking with a friend who has MS. Or just going outside and hearing the, the stillness and the silence and the beauty of just being awake, of being alive on this earth. Coming here to this room of people who are so dedicated to awakening, to goodness, to non-harming. It's a palpable force when you walk in this building. It's all around us, all the time. If we open our eyes and our ears and our hearts, right there we're connected. And I find what happens right then is that the, the motivation just to stay with it, and really, not, it's not just for my own sake anymore. It's awakening, really, for the benefit of beings. It's a much more strengthening motivation. And it's not something you have to, well, uh, think about. It just happens when we broaden the scope. It gives us a stability. Moments of beauty, of coolness, moments of suffering, and the connectedness of all of us in this. The Four Noble Truths is how things are. And we are the Dhamma, you know? We don't have to practice it. We are it. We're just trying to recognize what's already happening by itself. And I just want to offer one other thing that has personally also helped me in the same time when the sense of suffering just seems unbearable. I was doing a retreat this winter, this last winter, Oh, a few, several weeks. It just was one of those Mahadukkha retreats. Some retreats are just like that. And this is uh, something from Pachul Rinpoche talking about cultivating patience, actually, which Susan talked about. Patience as an enormous support for just being able to come back and stay with what is in the face of seeming unbearableness. But he's talking about patience as arousing bodhicitta, three types of transcendent patience. And this would go through my mind, and it gave me such fortitude, courage, really. Well, the first is patience when wronged. But the second is the patience to bear hardships for the Dhamma, internal hardships and external hardships. So say, you know, grant me the patience to bear hardships for the Dharma. And the third is granting the patience to face the profound truth without fear. And I think I would say that over and over. And each time I'd say it, something would just stop, you know. Just grant me the patience to face the profound truth without fear and let it go. I just want to end with this from the Buddha. Just not to be satisfied with less. He says, so this holy life, bhikkhus, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, nor the attainment of virtue for its benefit, nor the attainment of concentration for its benefit, nor knowledge and vision for its benefit, but It is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life, its essence and its end. Let's just sit quietly.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.